Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. I'm your host, Jay Lockenauer, and with me today is Matthias Strohn, uh, whose new book, The German Army and the Defense of the Reich, Military Doctrine and the Conduct of Defensive Battle, 1918 to 1939, just appeared with Cambridge University Press. I first met Matthias in the uh, German military archive in Freiburg in 2006, where he was putting the finishing touches on the dissertation that would become this book. And he impressed me as an energetic young scholar who was eager to revise our understanding of German interwar military doctrine. Historians for a long time have focused on finding the roots of Blitzkrieg in the interwar period, uh, Blitzkrieg being the lightning war that the Germans practiced in 1939 and 40 that enabled such spectacular victories over Belgium and in particular France. Strawn was proceeding from the sensible uh, point of view that the small German Reichswehr, the 100,000-man army that was allowed the Germans by the Treaty of Versailles, it was a fantasy for the Germans in the interwar period to really think about offensive warfare. Their army was dwarfed by all of their neighbors, even the Belgians, uh, and they couldn't even hope to match uh, the Poles or the Czechs, and certainly not the, the French. And so thinking about defensive warfare was a was a just a fact of life for the Germans. It was really all that they could hope practically to do. Uh, offensive doctrine, as Strone tries to argue, was was at least secondary to their thinking. So it's one of the reasons I wanted to feature his work on new books in military history once it appeared, because I think it's likely to reignite a conversation about interwar doctrine. Uh, Strone is currently an instructor at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst in the UK, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation conversation I was able to have with him. With me today is Matthias Strohn, the author of The German Army and the Defense of the Reich, Military Doctrine and the Conduct of Defensive Battle, 1918 to 1939, um, published by Cambridge University Press uh, just in the last year. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Military History, Matthias. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure uh, to rekindle this acquaintance that we made in the Ar- German archives uh, several years ago, and happy to see that the, the project that you're working on is now between covers. Yeah, finally. It took a while. <laughs> yeah, as it does. Well, um, we like to have the authors introduce themselves uh, to our audience, so if you tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you came to write this book. Mm-hmm. My name's Matthias Strohn. Um, I was born in 1976 in Germany. Um, after school, I did my military service, as we all had to do in Germany, because in those days we still had conscription. I then did my officer training. Um, after that, um, then went to university. I started at the University of Münster back in Germany uh, for the simple reason that in those days that was the only university in Germany that had a chair in military history. Then in 2001, I came over to England and did a master's degree at Oxford University, and then decided to stay there to do the DPhil. 
um, so the doctorate. And in 2005, I worked for um, the British Staff College for a while. And in 2006, I got the job at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, and that's where I still work today. The idea for this book was born a long, long time ago. And I remember I um, was on a seminar, and we went to Berlin, and I had to give a presentation on the German army in the interwar period. It was a, a seminar about total war. And um, as I said, I gave a, a paper on Hans von Siegt. And that's basically how it all started, and that's what woke my interest in in the subject. And so I also uh, chose Hans von Sieg for my master's thesis. And then I thought after that it's time to leave, to leave the interwar period behind and to go into the Second World War. And I had agreed on a on, on a title for my dissertation with my supervisor, Hugh Strawn, at, at Oxford. And I want to look at the uh, the end of the Second World War. We both agreed that um, to do that, you need to look. You need to look at the the interwar period again, just to see what kind of ideas the German army developed in the interwar period, and uh, whether all these these tactical and operational thoughts and innovations that they came up with in, in the Second World War were actually completely new, or just um, a development from the First World War, the interwar period, or. Um, perhaps even, well, a different period. So I went to the German archives in Freiburg, and so when I looked through all the documents and uh, for the interwar period, um, I saw there was so much material there that hadn't been used and, and um, accessed by any historians, and the, uh, the material that had been used had only been used uh, in a very, very narrow field, and that was basically the, the common argument trying to prove that the German army had developed some sort of a blitzkrieg tactic or doctrine in the interwar period that it then put to the test in, uh, in 1939. When I looked through the material, I relatively quickly realized that uh, the story was much more complicated and complex. And so, so I went back to, to Oxford and I talked to, to Hugh Strawn and so we both agreed that actually it would be quite a good idea to change the, uh, the, the topic of the, um, of the dissertation and to have a look at the interval period in much more depth and detail. Because as I said, no one had actually ever done this before. Whenever you find articles and books on the interval period, all they're trying to prove is really that, uh, as I said, the German army had this concept of, of a blitzkrieg and so that that was developed in the interwar period and then put to the test in 1939. This is a, a sort of an, an irony or at least a, co a coincidence that my most recent interview was with Robert Satino about okay. his book, uh, Death of the Wehrmacht. So this will form a sort of a nice pairing because in a way, I mean, you're an admirer. I th it comes out in the footnotes, I think, of, of Satino's work and Coram's work. But what is it that they're missing or how do you modify their, their thesis in your work? <laughs> The problem that I found with most authors is when they look at the interwar period, they only see that as a period of transition. So they approach it from the Second World War, that's their angle, and they think, where did they get all their ideas from? And then they move back into the interwar period, and then they move back into the First World War. And the common theme and the common argument that people like Chetina have brought forward is that particular development of the stormtroopers in the First World War um, basically sets the scene. Then once they've lost the war, they then use the next 20 or so years they have in the, uh, in the interwar period to basically think through the ideas, to come up with new ideas, to bring in the tanks, to bring in the air force, and then put the whole thing to the test in 1939. But it really, the, the problem really is that uh, it basically 
the, the argument starts in 1939 up to 1941 when they have this this, this developed Blitzkrieg um, concept. When you actually do look at the sources, yes, of course, well, there are some some aspects there that you might say, okay, then become well the Blitzkrieg and the Blitzkrieg tactic. Um, but when you actually look at what the German army did, particularly the well, the general staff, even though well, they were not called the general staff anymore because, well, German army was not allowed to have a general staff. So the Tottenmund and, and other institutions, when you look at, um, at the problems they dealt with and the solutions they came up with, basically it's all about a defensive war mainly against Poland and also France. And that's what they do from 1918 basically up to 1938, some even up to 1939. It is pretty much about a defensive war mainly against Poland because they realized that for the majority of the interwar period, if France gets involved in a major new war with Germany, the German army will lose within a few weeks' time. So yes, well, there are some aspects, there are some ideas um, that you might say link in with the, uh, the Blitzkrieg doctrine and the Blitzkrieg idea. But when you, actually, when, you, when you do dig a bit deeper, you do see that most of these ideas and principles are not really anything new. Um, they really link in with what happened in the First World War, and you can well go back even further in history. For example, the uh, the German Manual of 1906, the Infantry Manual, uh, states a lot of these things that we then see in the Second World War. The big difference between the First World War and uh, even the years before the First World War and then the Second World War is not so much that the doctrine changes, but what you do have, of course, is now you've got the combustion engine, and that's used to a much wider uh, degree and effect than, uh, for example, in the First World War. And uh, the effect of that is, of course, um, in, well, increased by the fact that particularly the French in the Second World War want to refight the First World War. So they have an army which is very much structured to a 1914 to 18 conflict. So the artillery, for example, is very, very strong. The tanks, even though they are very good, um, they're also very slow because they're still mainly seen as uh, an infantry support weapon. And they're not used in that uh, in that role that the Germans used them. So the French and the other armies have got the same um, well machines at their disposal, but they use them differently. And when you look at what the Germans actually do in 1930-1940, um, the principles you might say are, are not really new. The principles um, were tried and tested even in the First World War when the Germans invaded uh, invaded France. They are pretty much the same. Only everything happens much quicker on the battlefield because now they can put people on lorries in tanks and they have the air force. And so things on the battlefield happen quicker. That means the absolute speed um, of, well, potentially both armies go up. But of course, since the particularly the French want to refight the First World War, actually they slow themselves down. And that it's this gap uh, which then gives the Germans the upper hand. But as I said, when you when you look at the the doctrine of the uh, the interwar period, um, most of it really goes back to well tried and tested sound German military doctrine and principles, and the application of the of these principles, as I said earlier, in the interwar period is very much limited to a defensive war, which of course does not mean that you're not acting offensively. This is now linking in with uh, Clausewitz's statement about uh, about the uh, the nature of defence. So there is not a, a defence which is 100% defensive. You need to to have offensive action as well. But the overall conduct of operations will be um, defensive, and the Germans realise that because simply they'd be utterly outnumbered. 
And when you look at uh, some of these statements, particularly from the, the later part of the, the Weimar Republic, so between, let's say, 1930 and 1933, sometimes even up into the first year of the, the Nazi period, up to 35, 36, they are pretty clear about that. And they realized that even if, if Poland declared war on Germany, that the German army would not stand a chance um, in the field of battle. And so when you then look at the French army, that is several hundred thousand strong with lots of tanks and uh, a massive artillery, and the Germans don't have anything of that, and they've got what, what is basically a police force of 100,000 men, they quickly realized that the only thing they could do was um, withdraw into central Germany and then stand, fight, and die somewhere. And that is pretty much what they discuss most of the time. Where shall we actually meet the French in battle, and where shall we die? Yeah, that's an interesting. There's a there's a sort of a cultural angle to this, I think, which could um, could of course fill an extra volume about uh, mm-hmm. these these attitudes about about national honor and and especially with the, the sting of the Versailles Treaty and the the Ruhr occupation and, and so forth. Um, you've brought up several issues in this introduction already that I that I wanted to talk about. I think the um, it's fascinating that even in a book about the the German army and the defense of the Reich, you know how much you do end up talking about this kind of offensive mindedness um, of the Germans as being a part of the German tradition to to attack the enemy where where you find him, and yet to combine that in, in with your thesis about the overall. Um, um, I, I, I'll use the word strategy, and I'm probably using it incorrectly, but the overall um, tendency to be defensive. So can you uh, – who, who were the people that were involved in, in squaring that circle, or what were the different theories? I mean, you talk about this transition especially between Zeigt and, and a kind of post-Zeigt, whether it's Beck or Stulpnagel. Can you, can you describe that in a little bit more detail, especially about Zeigt, since you've done so much work on him? Mm-hmm. Um this, this whole debate sets in very, very early, early on, even before the peace treaty of Versailles is signed. So there are a number of meetings uh, after the armistice where German politicians um, ask the, uh, the view of the military and they want to see whether it might be possible uh, not to sign the treaty and go back to war. And it's already here. It's uh, basically it's um, late 1918, uh, uh, 18, uh, early 1919, where you can see the entire development of the of the interwar period. There's well the one uh, the one group of officers who say, um, well, whatever happens now, we have to go to war again because it is all about, as you said earlier, it's all about the honour. Even if if Germany dies, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's all about the honour, and that will then enable us, for, well, to have a big reborn Germany in 20 years' time. And uh, these people, like uh, Walter Reinhardt, for example, the first head of the, uh, the army command, uh, he was pretty clear about that. And he said, uh, well, let's not sign a peace treaty. Let's fight again. Let's take up arms. Uh, he, was, he knew that that would result in the invasion of Germany, uh, particularly by the French army. He was willing to accept that. He was willing to accept the, uh, the, the breakup of the, uh, the German Reich. And he said, we'll go into, into East Prussia and we'll fight them from there. So that was the... Uh, the one league or the one group of people. Then you have other people who are a bit more, well, uh, attached to reality, you might say. And so one of them is um, Wilhelm Gröner, for example. Um, and he then briefs uh, the, the politicians and also a lot of, of, of military people. And he says, yes, well, we, we can do that. That's uh, absolutely no problem. But of course, that means we will die. And for us, the most important thing now is that we uh, keep the unity of the Reich. We have to keep Germany together. And then in 10, 15, 20 years time, um, once we've well regained a little bit of strength, then we can unleash another big war. He was pretty clear about that, that he wanted another war. Relatively often when you, when you hear about, um, about him, 
people say, well, yeah, he was he was one of the nicer ones. He wanted peace. Um, not really. He also wanted to go to war. He wanted to win the Eastern Territories back. Um, but he realized that he, well, with the army at hand and in the international situation, that could not be achieved. So that's how it uh, roughly sets out. And then, well, from a more well military perspective, um, you then have a number of interesting developments. Because first of all, you mentioned Siegt, um, Hans von Siegt, uh, second uh, Chef der Heeresleitung, and basically probably the most important man in the interwar period for the German army. And he was so important that he's been called the, uh, um, the creator of the Reichswehr. And the principles he set out and that were embodied in the, um, in the manual Führung und Gefecht der verbundenen Waffen, which was introduced in the, in the early 1920s. Sum up his ideas quite, uh, quite, well, quite well. And again, here you can, you can see interesting development because when people have looked at Zegt, most people have only looked at, um, um, again, this, this transition uh, towards Blitzkrieg. And yes, it is there. Um, so he kind of, well, he likes offensive operations. Um, he thinks that uh, the German army should be a relatively small army. Um, he's not quite. Uh, clear about the uh, the numbers. So sometimes he says up well, somewhere in the region of two hundred thousand men. Then he goes up to about four hundred thousand men. But that that's about it. He does not want to go back to the mass army of the First World War. He wants to have a professional army that is well equipped and that can be sent into battle without any time of mobilization. So he because he thinks that that would give the German army the upper hand in a, in a war, for example, against France. Before the French would be able to mobilize their their. Uh, 80, 90 divisions and hundreds of thousands of soldiers, the German army in a perfect scenario would already have conquered Paris. That's, that's, that's the big idea it sets out. So yes, he's very much about offensive warfare. And it's, it's supplemented by, he has a, a concept for a militia. Is that, is that fair to say? That's then going to follow up. I mean, he's not, he doesn't imagine that, that 200,000 men are ultimately going to um, conquer Europe. Is that, is that true? When in, in his writings, Zieg is, relatively clear about um, his concept for the what he calls the operating army, the Operationsarmee, which is the uh, professional part of the army. He lays it out quite well. He talks about it in the, uh, in, in, in the number of books he writes. And when you look at his manual Führung und Gefecht der verbundenen Waffen, it is pretty obvious and clear that that was written with this kind of operating army in mind. The second part of his, um, of his concept, that deals with the uh, militia. And when you look at uh, the militia and the concepts he develops there, all his ideas are not as well thought through as they are with the operating army. And he changes his, his ideas a number of times. For example, in one of his books, he says that uh, the, uh, the military should be responsible for training the militia. Then in another book, he says that it shouldn't be uh, the, the military, but it should be civilian organizations. That also has to do with the, well, the context. As well, it's pretty obvious and clear that after 1933, there's a bit of a break when suddenly he sees that, yes, well, the Nazis have come to power. They've got this idea of, well, kind of, well the people, and you can bring in uh, many more uh, agencies than before. So that's, that's the one break we have. Um, on the other hand, it is quite interesting to see that uh, Zeigt in his writings, as I said earlier, is very much uh, in favor of offensive warfare. So he wants to, uh, in, uh, if possible, he wants to invade the, uh, the enemy territory before the enemy can invade Germany. That's why he wants to have this, this uh, mobile army, this army that is professional, well-equipped, um, that does not have or does not need any time for mobilization. So uh, well, the second war is declared, Germany can then invade the other countries. Um, if you do it like that, you don't even need the militia. 
because uh, well, the aim of the militia, the main aim of the militia is, and he says that in his writings, is to defend Germany against an invader. So here you can see a bit of a disconnect between, uh, well, in, in his arguments, because what do you need the militia for if you invade the enemy in the first place? On the other hand, he then gets around to it and says, um, well, we still need reinforcements for the army. So these re reinforcements basically come from the militia. The militia is some sort of, well, half trained bunch of people so at least they've seen a rifle before they know how to shoot they've had some well military experience perhaps so these guys can then be uh, brought into into the, the proper army and can then be brought up to speed relatively quickly so you can see that um, whereas the idea about the operating army the offensive part of the war is very very much thought through uh, with him it's not so much when you look at the defensive part and that's, I think, is also one of the reasons why most uh, other historians have looked at Zeigt and said, uh, yeah, well, he's been so influential, he's been very important, because when you look at his concepts, you can clearly see that some of the stuff, if you want to make that connection well, then leads to, to Blitzkrieg. And he cooperates, yeah, he sets up the cooperation with the Soviet Union, right, where they're supposed to be experimenting yes, with exactly. forbidden weapons. It, is, it does look um, pretty promising. Exactly. Well, there, there's a few things there, that's absolutely right. On the other hand, and that's the, the interesting thing, is when you, when you go into the archives and you look at the sources, you find relatively quickly that an awful lot of officers did not agree with what Zeke had to say. And that's another thing that uh, many people often overlook. When, uh, when you have this idea of the, of the Blitzkrieg, you always get the idea that, uh, yes, people all subscribed to it and they thought that's the way forward, but actually it wasn't. And uh, there's a number of, of, um, of statements by people like Joachim von Stultnagel or Gröner again, um, that say that, yes, well, it's, it's a nice idea. Uh, we might be able to do something like that in the next, well, 15, 20, 30, 40 years' time, but actually it doesn't help us at all now. And that is the problem. The big eye-opener is, um, is the uh, occupation of the rural area in 1923. So in 1923, um, well, 1922, Germany falls behind with a payment of reparation, and this is then uh, taken as the lever by the French and the Belgians to, uh, to occupy the Ruhr area, the, uh, the industrial heartland of Germany. This has, well, very, very severe impacts on German economy. And that's one of the reasons why we then have the, um, the, uh, the hyperinflation of 1923 in Germany. And uh, it is fair to say that that actually has left a mark on uh, kind of, well, the German general conscience. And basically, whenever you talk to Germans and you talk about monetary issues, the one thing they don't want is inflation. Because, well, even in the 1920s, it, well, what they experienced there is still very much there in the, in the common knowledge. Um, it also had a big impact on, uh, on the military scene. Young people like uh, Jochen von Stroopnagel um, started well, basically publicly criticizing um, Hans von Siegt and said, well, the ideas he's developed might be quite good if we ever, well, get a good army of about 400,000 men and it's well equipped, but we don't have this army now. So what can we do now to defend Germany against the enemy? And they're crystal clear about the fact, because, well, they've just seen that, that Germany is not able to, uh, to fight against the French, uh, let alone invade France or even Poland. And uh, they form what some people have called the so-called Front. So basically it's a group of young officers in the, in the Ministry of Defense, in the Truppenamt, i.e. the general staff, um, who come up with, with new ideas. And probably the most famous one, and quite a lot of stuff has been written on him, is uh, Joachim von Stülpnabel and, uh, and his idea about a people's war. So he says, well, he gives, gives a number of talks in 1924 and also 25, uh, where he writes about the, the uh, talks about the current situation, says, how can we actually win a war if it comes to war? He says, well, the only thing we can do is, well, we can have some sort of guerrilla war. 
um, which of course is nothing really that Germans are very fond of because Germans just don't do these things. Um, you want to fight well in the open like a, like a proper soldier. But he says it's the only thing we can do. There's nothing else uh, because the army is just too weak. Um, there, so you can see there's a lot of intellectual debate in the in the talk. And the interesting thing is that um, Stuckenagel writes that in his unpublished memoirs, he says that uh, Siegt uh, didn't like the idea at all. Um, Siegt is relatively often praised for his um, open-mindedness. And so when you when you read particularly the secondary literature, literature, it relatively often says that that was one of the strengths of the German army. The German army in the 1920s and 30s had all these these theoretical ideas. They were allowed to think, to come with new new stuff, new ideas, and then basically practice them. That was not the, so much the case with Stöbnagel. And Stöbnagel writes in his memoirs that Siegt wanted him removed from the from the Tokmund. Uh, he had a relatively important position there in the operations section. Because he simply didn't like uh, Stöbnagel's ideas. And it was only because uh, the, uh, the defense minister and a few other people intervened that he was actually allowed to stay. Not for very long, because in the end, Zeke got his way and had him, had him removed. So again, you can see, well, the whole story is a bit more complex and complicated than, uh, than many people think. And um, Zeke managed to hang on for another three years. He was then sacked in 1926. Uh, the reasons for that were actually a bit trivial. Um, he didn't really get on well with the defense minister, Gessler, uh, because simply didn't take him seriously. Um, that's another interesting point. When you talk about the German army in the interwar period, relatively often people say that that was the, 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 um, the state within the state. It was a statement brought forward by uh, the, the socialist pa- newspaper, Vorwärts, I think already in 1919 or 1920. When you actually do look at the structure of the state and the position of the army within the state, um, you can see that uh, the politicians had actually thought that one through. And it was pretty clear that the politicians, at least officially, were in charge. Because it was always the, uh, the, uh, the Reichspräsident, the President of the Reich, and then the Defence Minister, who would have the last say over the generals. But under Sieg, because Sieg was such a strong figure, and Gessler, the Defence Minister, was not, um, the situation changed. And uh, the army then became more powerful than uh, probably it should have been. This then changed later on again when um, when Ebert dies in 1926 and uh, and we have the new president. Of course, the new president Hindenburg uh, is not only the president, but what you might say is far more important to the to the generals. He's also the field marshal of the First World War. So suddenly, Zeit is in a, in a rather uncomfortable position that uh, he now has to take orders from the Reich's president, uh, who gets his authority within the army not because of uh, being Reich's president, but because of being field marshal. So, and you can you can really see that um, well, his position's position weakens after 1925, and in 1926 he's then sacked uh, simply because he allowed a member of the royal family to take part in uh, in some um, well field exercises, and that was then taken by the politicians as a lever to to sack him. And it is quite interesting to see that uh, most of the well, at least the younger officers were not well didn't feel too too sorry about that, and they were quite glad to see him leave, to be perfectly honest. Uh, because, well, they, as I said earlier, had realized that um, Zieg's ideas did not offer any solutions to the current problems Germany was facing uh, in the military sphere. And after that, say, well, all these these new concepts found uh, more attention, were given more attention, even though uh, Stürpnagel and his idea of the People's War um, did not really win too many supporters. He had a few, and there were a few war games and exercises where they tested that, but it was then relatively quickly realized that this whole concept 
Um, it did offer some value, but the political implications of this were just um, um, too great. And if the Allies found out about that, uh, that, uh, that would have an awful lot of negative implications. So they set up what they called the, uh, the Feldjägerdienst, which uh, is a bit misleading uh, to many people, particularly those who do speak a little bit of German and are familiar with German military terminology. Also, uh, normally, a Feldjäger in, uh, in current German military terminology is a member of the military police. So it might cause some confusions. But in those days, uh, this, this Feldjägerdienst, uh, well, basically these were the guerrillas. And the idea was to have an army of around about 200 to 300,000 men in Germany alone who could be mobilized at any moment. Uh, they also wanted to to push out into the what they call the occupied territories, so that is uh, Alsace-Lorraine and, of course, particularly in the east in uh, in Poland, and prepare people for well the next big war. Um, as I said, it, well, it never really kicked off. They had some support in in, in Germany, but the um, the organization in uh, well, well, um, outside Germany never really worked. And so when they then finally abolished the whole system in the mid to late 1920s, uh, they have about 10,000 people ready. And uh, after the so-called Gessler-Sievering um, Treaty between the Minister of Defense and the Prussian Minister of the Interior, they then stopped the whole thing because they say that, so yes, we, we do have 10,000 people, but the political implications of this could be so severe that it's simply not worth uh, pursuing that. Um, nevertheless... It is interesting to see that um, the whole idea was then uh, taken up again several years later, and that's towards the end of the Second World War. Uh, this, this whole concept of, of the Wehrwolf, um, so this, this, this partisan movement within Germany, where you would uh, fight against the invading enemies, um, was actually then taken uh, by a chap called Adolf Prutzmann, who was at that stage in the SS and in the 1920s, had actually worked on that uh, Feldjäger uh, pamphlet. Um, he took it up again, and so this, this 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 Wehrwolf concept of the Second World War is actually based on the uh, on you might say in essence on Stubnagel's ideas uh, from the 1920s. Well, that was exactly what I was going to ask. Um, it, that you highlighted this person, this continuity of personnel that the that the the people that were involved in 1944 45 were were in at the beginning in the in the 20s. And one of the things that you're that you're one of the possibilities that your book opens up, I think, is to trace some of those um, personal connections, the um, the degrees of, of patronage and, and sort of client-patron relations that go on. We know the story fairly well, I think, from the from the First World War with Moltke and Ludendorff and versus Falkenhayn and with Hindenburg and the Third Supreme Command and so forth. And and it's no surprise, as you point out, that these same kinds of things go on with Seicht has his coterie and, and Stolpnagel is on the outside and, and, and so forth. It's a really interesting kind of institutional study as well. That's very true. And um, one thing we shouldn't overlook is uh, the German army at that time is very, very small. It's 100,000 people. Um, that really isn't a lot. So I, I can see it here in England where the British army is about more or less about the same size as the, the Reichswehr used to be. And it's just astonishing to see, well, after a few years, having worked for the army, basically, you know, the entire army officer corps. And it's just that that's the way it was in the um, in, in the Reichswehr as well. And then, of course, another thing we have to remember is that all these these decisions and these 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 tensions we talk about here, they did not really affect the, the average um, well, company commander. 
So this really is, um, you might say, the operational thinking, the strategic thinking that takes place in the Ministry of Defense and takes place uh, in the, the Truppenamt, i.e. Um, in, in general staff. So this really is just a handful of soldiers um, who make all these uh, um, decisions, who think about these things, who write things up. Um, so it's, it really is a very, very small circle. And it's, are, a, it's a worthwhile revision, though, because – or of, I guess of a common sense sort of approach to it, which has been that Seikt in particular was able to select, um, you know, mainly staff officers and so forth to, to tailor the Reichswehr to his uh, vision. But you, you point out how he wasn't entirely able to do that even with such a small core of an army. Well, he's, he's important when they, when they set up the, uh, the Reichswehr. Um, he, basically, he gets a say there. Um, there is a big debate uh, within the German army in um, 1918, early 1919, up to 1920, uh, about um, which soldiers, which officers in particular, should actually be taken over into the Reichswehr. And so there's, um, there's two different uh, camps here. And the one camp says, well, it should be uh, kind of well, the, the infantry officer who's actually seen service in the trenches, so who knows what combat is like. So these guys, we'll be needing them because, well, they are the war heroes. Um, let's take these guys uh, in, into the army. Zeke then says, well, no, that's no good. And because, well, we do need general staff officers because it's all about thinking. Um, the thinking part is more important. You can always train soldiers relatively easily and also officers, but it's uh, all about intellectual abilities. And he then points out that, at least in theory, and that um, was, of course, the, the German general staff idea and the structure, that even general staff officers were normal frontline officers. Because well, normally they would move from, from a, well, a staff appointment to, uh, to a troops command somewhere well, on the Western Front or wherever. And he gets to say, so the, the, um, the Reichswehr consists, has, consists of a large number of, um, of general staff officers taken over from the First World War. And another thing that is quite striking... Um, also consists of uh, a very, very high percentage of aristocracy. During the, uh, the, the Weimar Republic, the German army has the highest percentage of aristocracy that it ever has. And Siegt is quite clear about that. He wants these people in there. He doesn't want anybody else. And you can also see that in the, uh, the, um, in the 19, well, early 1920s, when the question comes up what to do with the, with the Freikorps. Now, some people say we should take over all these, these units because, well, they fought quite well and they can fight. And he says, no, I don't want any of this riffraff in my, in my army because um, they're not used to a normal chain of command. Most of them only obey their, and, well, their free corps leader, and we don't want them in there. So they do take them over, well, particularly in the, in the temporary uh, Reichswehr in, the, in 1920, but then they're trying to, to get them out again. And, and he's quite successful at that. Um, but yes, it, it is a very interesting point because the army is small. And when you look at um, all the, the big German military heroes of the Second World War, um, of course, you see all the names uh, in, the, uh, in the interwar period. All of these people then make uh, general and, uh, and field marshal in the Second World War, of course, were there in the Reichswehr, Reichswehr as well. And so uh, you do see all the names. And the interesting, really, the interesting thing really is that... Um, uh, a high percentage of the um, well, the great generals, let's call them, of the Second World War, were actually part of this this, this younger group uh, who did not particularly like Zeke's ideas. Uh, so, for example, in the, in the Stuttgart uh, group, you have uh, people like uh, like Fritz Blomberg uh, and the like. So, there's there's an an interesting mix of people there. Other people, on the other hand, like Guderian. Um, I think were not as important as they're later made out to be because simply he was too young. Yes, he did write a few articles, and yes, um, 
Uh, he did look at British and French and American tank doctrine, but uh, there are other people who perhaps were a bit more important than, uh, than, than, than Gudirjan at the time. You mentioned the Ruhr occupation in 1923 as an important watershed. Is the is this, quote, seizure of power by the Nazis in 1933 the next important watershed? The interesting thing is that uh, from a military perspective, um, as the direct implications uh, the seizure of power had for, well, a possible conduct of war, um, it wasn't that important at all. Um, Hitler developed his ideas of, well, gaining the living space in the East, and he um, told this to the, uh, the heads of the, uh, the military relatively early on. But um, it did not mean that the military situation had changed considerably. The, you might say from a military point of view, actually the thing that is more important is perhaps the, um, the treaty Germany signs with Poland in 1934. Because suddenly for the first time, uh, Germany does not have to expect uh, in a, a Polish invasion in, an, in, in the next war. That has always been the big fear. So they, they always thought it doesn't matter what happens if war breaks out, Poland and France will eventually together invade Germany and that's the end um, um, of Germany as we know it. So 1933 um, does not really change anything. When you look at the, the war games, the exercises, uh, they are still pretty much the same. Uh, simply because, yes, they have these ideas. Yes, they want to build up a strong army. But um, well, in 1933, they don't have it. And even then later on, when the, uh, the German army gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and, uh, well, it's, it's quite impressive to see how quickly they managed to do that, actually. So they moved from an army from just over 100,000 men in 1933 to, well, 2.5 million in 1939. Um, but they had to cut a lot of corners. That's, uh, the Germans did not think that the army was as good as it looked on paper. And the other thing, and that's relatively, relatively overlooked, is the fact that all the other armies around Germany, or the other countries, still had pretty large armies. So the French army still stood at roughly 800,000 men. And if you expect a, a major European war, and you expect that in that war you will have to fight against Poland, France, and probably Czechoslovakia, and perhaps even well, the Soviet Union, or well, even another state, um, two million German soldiers are actually not that many. And it's quite interesting to see that in, in most of the, uh, the, the plans and the, the exercise and the war games from the German military, right up to 1938-1939, they're still very much planning on a defensive war. And it's only in the, um, in the well, late 1930s that they actually say that um, we've now got this army which is relatively big um, and now we can actually defend Germany against the enemy. They're not really talking about launching big invasions in, into France. Because they still think that the French army um, is far superior to the German army and that if a big war breaks out, yes, they will be able to hold the, the, uh, the, the French back now. They will be able to defend the River Rhine and the Black Forest in the south. But they think that they're still not strong enough to, to launch a big invasion. Um, there are, for example, a few documents from uh, uh, the later Field Marshal Leib, um, who is um, at that stage Army Group Commander C, and he's, he's, he writes letters and the pamphlets back to, to Berlin saying that, well, it's still so dire, so if war really does break out, um, we can't do anything and we will lose. And he, he lists the, uh, the French units and the German units facing each other. And actually, it, it's, it's quite impressive because you can see that uh, for the German army in the West, the situation was not that good at all. So yes, it's getting better. But uh, in 1939, the Germans did not think that they had this, this, this big 
big army that was able to launch well, what we now call Blitzkrieg and basically subdue most of Europe within the next two or three years' time. So that came as a big surprise to the German army as well. I think, as we all know, in the course where we have these, these debates between Hitler and, and his generals. And the reason why we have them is exactly because the, the generals had the experience of the, sec- of, of the interwar period. So you have a small army, you're surrounded by strong enemies. What can you actually do to defend Germany against the enemy? And I think this is one of the, uh, the, the core points about the book. As I said earlier, normally the, uh, the period between the two world wars um, is just reduced yeah. to this period of transition. And people tend to overlook what the people in those years actually thought and did and what they wanted to achieve. Because they did not know that in 1939 they'd have a big army and could launch a big war. And uh, in uh, 1945, of course, well, the story would take a different ending. They did not know that in the 1920s and in the early 1930s. And they had to come up with plans for the defense of Germany at the time and not do some crystal ball glazing and say, okay, in 10, 15 years' time, we might have an army which looks like this. I mean, the remarkable thing, as you're pointing out, is that even into 1939, uh, this issue hasn't been settled about what the army can do um, to to be victorious. Yes, that's that's very true, and um, of course, it's it's particularly an issue in the uh, in, in the West at the stage. By 1939, the German army is um, quite sure that it can win a war against Poland. And well, interesting enough, the Germans, have, well, for most of the time, they're quite sure about that. Up to 1923, 26, they say, yes, well, Poland is not an issue. We can defeat Poland. That's, that's all doable. Uh, then we have the Ruhr occupation. They think, yeah, maybe it's all a bit more complicated. But then by 19, well, by the mid-1930s, well, they get a bit more confident because the army is getting bigger. And they say, yes, Poland, we can deal with Poland. That's not the problem. The problem always remains France. Because they know that uh, whatever happens in the East, eventually France will come in and support Germany's enemies. So really the problem for the Germans is um, the Western Front, not the, uh, not the East. As um, uh, Gruner once said, well, the fate of Germany will be, de- will be decided on the River Rhine, not the River Vistula. And um, I think that's actually um, quite a good comment. And that sums it up quite nicely. And the interesting thing is that uh, even right into the Second World War, the Germans uh, were not too sure that they could uh, defeat the French. And you just have to look at the uh, the development of the, the German plan um, of invasion in, in, in France in 1940. Um, the, the initial plans uh, were basically very, very uninspired, a bit like the, the Schlieffen plan of, of the First World War. And uh, when you look at, for example, Munstein's memoirs and, and his writings, uh, he heavily criticizes that and says, well, it's, it's obvious what's going on here, while well, the generals are not uh, brave enough to go for the, uh, the, the big solution, as he calls it. And he uh, accuses them of, uh, well, if you want to call it accuse it, of being overly cautious and just getting into, in, into Belgium and uh, quite a few generals then expected another, well, trench war like in the First World War. But this time, of course, it would be a bit better for the um, for the Germans because they were not facing a, a two-front war because they had uh, a treaty with the Soviet Union. So that probably did help. It's interesting. Uh, one of the one of the questions that I think your your book begs it regards French policy, because of course, at a certain level, this German debate seems to be happening in a vacuum. Uh, you know, uh, but of course, the French are out there. What were the French really intending to do? We have this this, this conception that the French were just going to sit behind the Maginot Line, but I think the Germans are are, are assuming a kind of offensiveness to uh, to French strategy that maybe wasn't there. What do you know anything about that? Yeah, you. <laughs> That's that. That's also an interesting point because well, all these 
these debates and all this thinking, as you point out, was seem to happen in a bit of a vacuum. And I think that's 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 a fair comment. The Germans were utterly convinced that whatever happened, the French would get involved in the war. Uh, the French actually had made a few statements um, even before the uh, the uh, uh, the peace treaty had been signed. Um, there were a few things that were happening in the east, and the Germans actually um, tried to to push the uh, you might say at, at that stage there were still Polish insurgents, if you want to use that term, out of the province of of Posen. And uh, the French then sent a note and said, "Well, stop that immediately. Otherwise, we will invade in the west and we will renew the war." So that was kind of well the framework the Germans always worked in, right right to well the outbreak of the Second World War, you might say. Um, it is, of course, true that uh, in France itself, um, the desire to go to war was not really that much there. So maybe, to a certain degree, the Germans were a bit, perhaps a bit paranoid about the whole thing. On the other hand, um, I think it's, we well, can't really blame them for that. And when you look at the, well, the French reactions, the French comments, uh, what the French wanted to achieve in the, in the, in the Treaty of Versailles, um, I can understand why the Germans thought that that would always be happening. Of course, then it turns out completely different in, in 1939, because as you, as you exactly point out, well, the French sit behind the measure line and, uh, well, that's, that's where they stay. But let's not forget that uh, the, the Maginot Line is only built, well, really in the 1930s. Before that, uh, the French and basically British and New Zealand and American forces um, have uh, have occupied German territory. And it would be very, very easy for them to, to march into Germany, as indeed they did in 1923. Exactly. In I, mean, that's, I think that's the answer right there. I think you mentioned yeah. the, the scars of the inflation, but also yeah. the, the scars of the occupation, I think, yeah. um, leave a, a power so, yes, yeah. so, so may, maybe the Germans kind of well kind of lost track of what was really going on in France but they really really thought that if well, war breaks out on whatever front it doesn't matter even if it was against I don't know a state like Denmark uh, there's, there's one war game where they might play uh, through a war against Denmark you, you might ask yourself the question why against Denmark but it's just one of these things they do and so they're doing not that badly but then of course after two weeks the French come in and that's the end of the, of the war game and uh, so that, that, that was always the biggest fear for the Germans. And yes, well, they had experienced it in the 1920s. And even though they were then hiding behind uh, the, uh, the Maginot Line, uh, the Germans still thought that if, if, if a proper big war broke out, um, well, the French will invade. And well, you, you might argue that uh, that's exactly what the French should have done in 1939. So if the French uh, and perhaps even the British had invaded Western Germany, while about 80% of the German army was engaged in, uh, in uh, defeating uh, the Polish. And they occupied the Rhineland. The German war machine runs dry within two weeks' time, and that's the end of the Second World War. Uh, and that was really the thing that Germans were very, very worried about. So it's not really so much about, I don't know, the French occupying some southern territories like, I don't know, getting your hands on Stuttgart or any, any place down there, because that's not really crucial. Um, they were always very, very concerned about the rural area. And it's it's not that far away from uh, from uh, uh, from the French or the uh, the well, Dutch and Belgian borders. It's only about a two hours drive, and you're there. So they were very very worried about that. Well, thanks for your time, uh, Matthias. It's it's been fascinating to talk to you. It's a it's a it's a great book. It's an important uh, challenge, I think, to some of the the um, conceptions that we have about the development of German military thinking and and practice. Um, and uh, I hope it acquires a, a large readership. I always like to, to ask authors what their next project is, what they're working on now. Is it something that's related or are you going in a different direction? 
Um, it's partly related. When I when I did the uh, the research for this book, as I said, well, it, the whole thing started off um, as a project um, in the in the Second World War. Then I moved back into the interwar period, and when I I decided to do this interwar period book. I then thought that I need to go further back in history and to look at what actually happened in the First World War. So uh, there's there's one chapter in the book on the development of the uh, defensive battle in the First World War. And uh, this is what I'm doing now. So I'm looking uh, in much more detail at uh, the uh, the German army in the First World War now. And um, I've chosen a German regiment. And I'm following that regiment through and see how this regiment uh, applied doctrine uh, how they coped with uh, new situations, new challenges on the uh, on the on the front line, and um, how basically um, well the conduct of the defensive battle developed uh, for the German army in in the First World War. And the regiment I've chosen is um, the 73rd Fusilier Regiment from Hanover. Um, when you when you do research in uh, on the German army in the First World War, uh, it's always a bit problematic because an awful lot of sources were destroyed by a by British bomber raid on um, Potsdam, where the army archives were held in, in 1945. Um, that means that uh, looking at Prussian army units in the First World War is very, very complicated. It's much easier for Bavarian army units or Saxon army units or units from Württemberg, um, because, well, these archives are still there. And it's another thing that's uh, relatively often overlooked up to 19, well, basically 2021, when we have the Reichswehr. We don't have a united German army or one German army. The German army is an army of contingents. So you have a Prussian army, a Bavarian army, a Saxon army, and a Württemberg army. Uh, so that's that's just on, on the sideline. Uh, so that's what I'm looking at. And I've chosen that regiment quite deliberately because, first of all, it serves on the Western Front for four years. So you get this continuity there. And uh, most of the time, it actually fights against British and Camelworth units. And that, of course, well, rather selfish reason, makes it, <laughs> makes it easier for me to, to do the research. I could see that coming. <laughs> yeah, because um, um, Sandhurst is only about half an hour's drive from the, uh, uh, the National Archives away. So it's relatively easy to look to, well, to dip into, into the British sources and then also well, look at what the other side did and what they thought about the German performance in the war. And the last reason why I went for that um, regiment is because it is Ernst Jünger's regiment. Oh, nice. And so, so basically, first of all, it makes the whole thing uh, in itself more attractive because, well, you've got this um, this very important writer, probably the most important German writer of the First World War, and also helps uh, at least to a certain degree to overcome the source problem simply because, um, well, he wrote his books like Storm of Steel and, and a few others and uh, he also left his diary that, uh, well, the diaries have now been published, at least in German. So all this makes it a bit easier and a bit more accessible um, and that's the reason why I went for, for that regiment. So, yeah, I'm done with the research, more or less, at least in the, in the German archives. Um, I finished that, so I'm hoping to get cracking with that within the next few weeks, really. Terrific. Mm. I, I also like to impose on, on uh, my interviews to ask them what book I should read next is there something that's come out in the in the last year that uh, that should be on new books in military history well the one I would recommend but it doesn't really help you because you can't interview uh, the author anymore actually is in Junger's diary but it would be a bit tricky to interview him really to be perfectly honest uh, that probably would not quite work um, another one that has been quite influential, it's been out for, for a while now, so I'm not quite sure if you've, uh, if you've already done an interview or um, have some sort of um, um, feedback on that. It's uh, Alexander Watson. It's a book called, um, it's, it was published in the Cambridge series, 
and it is about combat, combat effectiveness in the First World War. And he looks at uh, basically more or less the uh, well, morale in the, in the German and the British armies and the collapse of morale in, uh, in, in the German army towards 1918. This, at least over here in, in Britain, has been quite controversial because in Britain we have this, this uh, the school of people who think that there was this learning curve, that the British army went on this learning curve and by 1918 it came out as the best army in the world. Um, I have always challenged that and the problem with this learning curve is that it sounds very convincing as long as you don't read any German sources. The moment you read one German source, it's slightly different because while most of the sources I've come across um, say that the British army on the tactical level, so let's say up to perhaps battalion level in that, in that instance, uh, was very, very good. Everything above that was not that good. Uh, and they particularly had leadership issues. And the German um, intelligence reports and after action reports state that right through the, through the entire war, right to the, to the last day of the war. And um, I shouldn't be saying that working for the British army, but what the Germans actually do think is that the French army is far superior to the British Army. And you see that right toward, well, to the end of the war. And the reason why uh, the British Army is so success successful in the famous 100 days is basically because at that stage the German Army is not the army of 1914, 15, 16, 17 anymore. The German Army has been defeated in the field. Um, there are so many reports from company commanders where they say, well, when we went out we had 160, 180 men. We're now down to 20 and 10 of them are down with the flu. Um, and basically, that's, that, that really is the, the important issue. And, uh, of course, that also then had a, a big impact on, on, the, on the morale of the German troops. And that's what Alexander Watson looks at. And as I said, it's been, at least over here, very controversial. Um, but I think it's a very good book and uh, it can be recommended. And particularly, um, well, if you're able to read German sources, you will see that, um, well, yes, his arguments do hold water. And he's one of the relatively few Brits who work on the First World War uh, who actually uh, use German sources. Uh, you don't get that very often. So. Well, that lets me, lets me put on my dissertation supervisor hat uh, for, this, uh, for this final moment and to plug language training. It's one thing I'm always trying to stress to my students that, uh, you know, the, able, the ability in military history to, to look on the other side of the hill, you know, to, yes. to access Japanese sources if you're working on the, the Pacific yes. War or something like that just is uh, absolutely indispensable. So, <laughs> so thanks, for, thanks for discussing your, your book with us and thanks for allowing me to make that important uh, pedagogical point as well. And um, I'll, I'll look forward to this, to this book. I'm reading plenty on the First World War, so I'll look forward to this one on the, on the uh, Hanover Regiment. Thanks yes. again for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. You've just heard my interview with Matthias Strohn, the author of The German Army and the Defense of the Reich, Military Doctrine and the Conduct of Defensive Battle, 1918-1939, to published by Cambridge University Press in 2011. Thanks for listening. Thank you.